take our scriptures that is the authority and open them with me to Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 17, starting in verse 1. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses of that chapter. Isn't the word of God wonderful? Just pause for a second. I mean, here we are. We're about to open the word of God and hear what he says. And isn't it to be treasured and, and savored and loved? I just love the word of God. Well, let me start with a question. Who am I? You know those games, Who Am I? I had 18 brothers and sisters. I was a missionary to Georgia before I was saved. I preached to tens of thousands of people, yet I'm not known for my preaching. I wrote 10 poetic lines a day for 50 years. I wrote almost 9,000 hymns, more than 10 times more than Isaac Watts. Yet, I am overshadowed by my older brother. Who am I? Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley. We sing some of these hymns together still. And can it be? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Love divine, all excelling. Christ the Lord is risen today. Rejoice the Lord is King. Jesus, lover of my soul. And we could go on and on and on. Perhaps his best known hymn, we sing, almost every church sings this every year. Hark the herald angels sing. William Peterson wrote, Wesley's carol, this carol, is filled, so filled with powerful scriptural ideas, a month could be spent exploring these stanzas. I want you to listen closely to the second stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Christ by heaven's highest adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, Behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Sometimes we sing that and we don't even know what we're singing, do we? We love the tune. The words just flow out. But literally a month could be taken exploring what he just wrote. And we don't have a month today. We have a few minutes. But that's what we're going to be exploring today. Jesus veiled his deity. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 17. There God's word says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face 
shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared with them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw... No one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me to work through this text faithfully, that you will speak through your people, through this faulty vessel, this weak vessel, Lord, Encourage, admonish, rebuke, and train. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is many things to us. He is our teacher. He is our healer. He is our savior. He is our friend. He is our protector. He is our sustainer. He is our shepherd. He's our redeemer. He is our bridegroom. The list could go on and on and on. But supremely, Jesus is our God. He's our God. MacArthur wrote, Here is the greatest confirmation of his deity yet in the life of Jesus. Here, more than any other occasion, Jesus reveals himself as he truly is, the Son of God, through his transfiguration. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. His transfiguration. Jesus here in these texts leaves Caesarea Philippi that is in the northeastern mountains above Galilee. And he's traveling through the mountains. And he comes to a mountain. We don't know which mountain. Many people have said this is Mount Herbin or Mount Tabor or the highest peak there, Mount uh, Miron. But we're not sure which mountain it was that he went to. And while he camped there, Luke's gospel in the parallel account in Luke 9 says that he took these three disciples up this mountain to pray, to pray with them. Peter, James, and John. Same group that he asked to pray with him in Gethsemane. Now going up a mountain should always, always in the mind of of a person that reads the Bible, should always make you pause. Okay, they're going up a mountain. Something big is going to happen here. Something important. Because important, big theological things happen on top of mountains. 
Moses encountering God in the burning bush happened on a mountain. Him receiving the Ten Commandments happened on a mountain. Elijah defeating the priests of Baal happened on Mount Carmel. Jesus' incredibly hard temptations earlier in Matthew happened on a mountain. Jesus chose to teach his most earth-shattering sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain. And on this unknown mountaintop, Jesus completes, if you will, a kind of mini-gospel that we've been looking at. If you look back at chapter 16, there in verses 13 through 20, we, we, we talk there about Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Jesus is the divine Messiah. This first time that this has come out, that's been spoken on earth, is in Caesarea Philippi. And then he goes on in verses uh, 21 through 24 to tell of of what this Messiah is going to do. He is going to go to Jerusalem and the chief priests and scribes and teachers of the law are going to make him suffer and they will kill him. But on the third day, raised from the dead. The first time that he is actually telling of this mission, of this wonderful substitutionary atonement that he is going to attain for all of humanity. And then as we continue here in chapter 17, we see that his messiahship, his mission, and his glorification, who he is. He shows his glory here, this mini gospel. And this, this revelation is shown of who he is in three ways. And the first way we see here is through his transfiguration. Look at me with, at verse 2 in, in chapter 17. It says, And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and clothes became as white as light. Commentators are quick to point out that if you notice this this glory, this light, was not a reflection of some other light like it has been in Scripture before. Kind of like the moon is, is reflecting the light of the sun. Kind of like Moses, when he came down from the mountain, was reflecting. Remember, his face was glowing when he came down. He was reflecting the glory of God. This is different. It's coming from within. It's not a reflection of it's a part of him. It's who he is. Pure, holy, powerful. Those are the images that light conjure up in our mind, doesn't it? Displayed in the bright white light of God. That bright white light that we just read about as a congregation. That, we, that Daniel saw in the vision of God, the Ancient of Days. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. God always reveals himself, always reveals himself in light. Timothy reminds us of this in his wonderful benediction in the first letter. Blessed an only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells where? In unapproachable light. That is what Jesus is giving these three disciples a glimpse of, that, that unapproachable light 
I don't know if any of you saw that movie Cocoon years ago about these aliens who come down and live among this older uh, population. And, and one of them is doubting who they are. He's, they're starting to reveal who they are to these, to these humans. And, uh, and Steve Gutenberg is there and, and Brian Dennehy, who's one of the aliens, wants to show who he really is underneath this skin. And he kind of pulls down the skin around his eye and, and you know, light comes out. I'm no way saying that's what it looked like with Jesus. But he's showing what, who he really is here. He's giving them a glimpse into the unapproachable light that God is. Jesus also reveals himself as God through Elijah and Moses. Their declaration. Look at verse 3 with me. And behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. These two play a huge role in the life of Jesus. Elijah's ministry of confronting and and preparing the ground as a model for the forerunner of Elijah. And that's what he is telling them in verses 10 through 13. He's explaining to them, Elijah has come. John the Baptist. Moses' ministry is to be a model for the Messiah's own ministry. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18 tells us to look for a prophet like Moses and listen to him. But these two Old Testament figures also confirm Jesus' identity in another way. Listen to what John MacArthur writes. As no others, Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. As no others, they could give human testimony to Jesus' divine majesty and glory. By their presence together, they are affirming, in effect, this is the one to whom we have testified. The one whose power we ministered in. And the one in whom everything we said and did has meaning. Everything we spoke, accomplished, and hoped for is fulfilled in him. Including his departure. It doesn't say it here in our text, but again, in Luke, it's very interesting. Luke records that that when they came, they talked to him. What did they talk to him about? Luke says they talked to him about his departure. His, and they use the word there in Greek, exodus. See, the whole Old Testament gives evidence to the Messiah's mission to be that sacrificial mediator for for humankind. To defeat God's enemies like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. To bring the people back into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish. To suffer, to die, but to rise again in victory. That's what this table that we celebrate each week reminds us. Because we forget that. It's so interesting. I said last week that, that Jesus began, or two weeks ago, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to be raised again. And he had to remind them again in chapter 17. 
He had to remind them again in chapter 20. He had to remind them again in chapter 26 in the upper room over and over and over again. Why? Why, did, why is that recorded that he had to continually tell them, listen, I'm going to suffer and die for you and have the victory for you because we need reminding. We are people that get so distracted with little things. We're talking about that in Sunday school today. We need to be refocused on what is really central to us. And that is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what these elements do. That's what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. Yeah, it's very interesting. Peter doesn't even comprehend this. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. He says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple of tents here so we can stay here. I mean, what is the motivation for that? I mean, there's many different theories why Peter said that. Maybe he just wanted to stay in this mountaintop experience longer, right? I mean, if you've ever had a mountaintop experience with, with your Lord, if you've ever really just been in a place where you don't want to leave that's our tendency. I just want to stay on the mountaintop. Maybe that's what Peter wanted to do. I just want to stay. Some commentators say that he sees this as the culmination of the Messianic age. There's a prophecy in Zechariah that says when the Messiah comes, he will bring in this age of, of wine and of bread. And at that time, they will be like they're in the wilderness with the pillar of fire in God's presence and they will build tabernacles and stay with him forever. Maybe he's referring to that. Maybe he knows that prophecy. But whatever Peter has in mind, he misinterprets the divine confirmation that is going on here, doesn't he? He's missing the point. And so God the Father reaffirms it. And we see that in verse 5. It says, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice of the, in the cloud said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The last time we heard God's voice say these very words was back at his baptism, if you remember. So here we are kind of at a, a bookend of his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, we have this Affirmation from God. And all three of these disciples heard it. God's affirming Jesus' deity. The first person of the Godhead descending in bright glory cloud. And their reaction was the reaction that, that we all have when, whenever we're in the presence of God. We see it in scripture. They were terrified. They fell and they were terrified. The spiritual reaction for being in the presence of God is reverent terror. Reverent terror. But there's a second reaction that happens when you're in the presence of God. It isn't immediate, but it's just as tangible. It should be just as tangible. And that is when you're in the presence of God, you get transformed. You get transformed. 
Transformation happens. There's a wonderful short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Great Stone Face. Maybe some of you have read it. The story's about a mountain that overlooked a village that had etched in its stone a face. The legend has it that one day a man with that face would return to the village and would be a blessing to all the villagers. Hawthorne writes of a, of a young boy named Ernest who heard that legend and would spend hours gazing at that stone face, wishing that that man would come back and bless the village. Every once in a while, rumors would, would be stirred up that this man had returned and, and Ernest would run and look at the man's face and be disappointed because it wasn't the face on the mountain. Over the years, Ernest grew, as Ernest grew older, he loved the village And he became known for his wisdom. And he cared for the villagers. One day he was walking with another man. And Ernest turned to talk to that man. And that man saw Ernest's face in the background, saw the face on the mountain. And this man threw his arms around Ernest and said, Finally, stone face has come back. Ernest had become what he beheld. And there's some biblical truth in there. You become what you behold. You become what you hang around. Poor Peter, who wanted to put up tents, we see his transformation in Scripture, don't we? We see it from being a denier of Christ an adamant denier of Christ, to standing in Acts 4 before the mightiest court that he knew, the Sanhedrin, and saying, it doesn't matter to me. I have to obey God, not man. Do what you will. Transformed. So transformed that Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that when he was being martyred, when he was being killed by crucifixion, he said, I am not even worthy of being crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. John was transformed. Another of the three on the mountain that day. We see John's transformation from one who walked with with Jesus, who went into a town one day and they rejected him and came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, call down fire on that town and destroy that town. They rejected me. To the apostle of love. You read his his gospel it totally transformed his heart. James. James was another of the son of thunder, just like John. Angry. Problem with anger. Who was the first to lay down his life of the apostles. Refusing. To give up the name of Jesus. As the disciples beheld the majesty of Christ, yes, their immediate reaction is fear. But the long term, it is change. They, they start to become what they behold. They start to become that which they stay in the presence of. And that's true for you and me as well. 
Romans 12, chapter 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Same word, by the way, used in, in Matthew 17. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you spend time in the presence of God, as you spend time in the presence of Christ, as you spend time in the presence of his body, the church, as you spend time there, you begin to change. You begin to transform. As you meditate on his word, as you pause in prayer and just be with your Savior. Have you ever done that? Just be with him. Don't ask. Don't praise. Just be. As you spend time in his body, you change. And you begin to become what you behold. By abiding in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, your mind actually gets renewed. Your mind changes. Your mind gets rewired. Your patterns of thought. Your patterns of behavior. The patterns of your heart. They change. They transform. It's not something that happens overnight. That's what we all want. That's what people come into my office and sit in that chair and want from me. They say, Pastor, this, now change. And I say, well, I can't do that. The Holy Spirit is going to have, take you through a process. We want to say prayer and be different, don't we? We want to repent of that sin and never have a problem with it again. That's not how it works. We're not promised that kind of change, but what we are promised is a slow change degree by degree. This isn't anything new for you, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of God are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. There's the slowness. Leighton Ford wrote, God loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. It's true. He loves you right now with as much love in his heart as he can, but he's not going to leave you where you are. He's going to change you. But our change, our sanctification, is a slow and loving process. Do you remember those of us, I don't know, who were aware in the 70s that Heinz ketchup commercial anticipation, right? You hold it. Anticipation is going slowly, coming slowly. It's not coming out. Waiting. It's moving, but it's slow. That's our sanctification. And it's frustrating. The process by which our sin is slowly revealed to us is slow. In Bret Hart's story, The Luck of Roaring Camp, Helps give us an understanding of how this happens in our own lives. Roaring Camp 
was the meanest, toughest mining town in the West. More murders, more thefts. Terrible place inhabited strictly by men except for one woman, Cherokee Sal. Cherokee Sal gave birth to a baby girl one night and she died. The men took the baby and they put her in a box with some old rags underneath her. When they looked at this, the purity of this newborn in the box with the dirty rags they had placed her on, something just didn't look right. So they decided to send one of the men 80 miles away to buy a rosewood cradle. He brought it back and they took that baby in the rags and they placed her in this rosewood cradle. And when they did, the rags didn't seem right in this beautiful rosewood cradle. So they sent another man to Sacramento. And he came back with some beautiful silk and lace blankets and they placed the baby in the rosewood cradle on these beautiful silk blankets. And it looked fine for a time until they started to notice that the ground around the cradle was filthy. So some of these men got down on their hands and knees and they, and they scrubbed the, the floor and the walls and the windows until it was clean. Of course, all that did was draw attention to the terrible curtains that were hanging on the windows. So they went out and they got new curtains and they hung new curtains in the windows. But the baby slept a lot. And they noticed that that their fighting and brawling and yelling would wake the baby up. So slowly over time, they stopped fighting and yelling and brawling. During the day, they would take the baby outside and they'd set her at the entrance to the mine so that they could see her when they first came up out of the dark then somebody noticed how, how filthy that place was. And so they, they, they scraped it and they, and they planted a garden and they placed her in the garden. And men would come up from the mine and they'd bring shiny rocks and place it in the garden. As they did that, as they were placing these rocks down, they noticed how filthy their hands were. And soon the general store was sold out of soap and shaving gear. And on and on and on. You see, the purity of that baby slowly over time showed the filth that they were living in. But it didn't happen overnight. That's how transformation happens in our lives, brothers and sisters. It's slow. As you spend time with the purity of the Holy Spirit, the purity of who God is, other areas of your life you begin to see. You begin to notice that, that your language or your judgmentalness is, is out of place. Sites you visit on the internet don't feel right anymore. The places you go, those things that were once acceptable start to become not as acceptable. But even more significant than the outside is the inside transformation that you begin to have. Your thought life begins to bother you. The things that, that you meditate on. 
Your fleshly desires begin to be out of place. Your heart that once looked at a person and would avoid that person or, or perhaps slander that person or maybe even hate that person, your heart actually begins to break for that person. All these things, it's just like the baby slowly transforming that mining town. Jesus slowly transforms you. I know it can be frustrating. I know it can be hard. It can be hard to open up God's word and and stay there a while. It can be hard to pray. It can be hard to dedicate yourself to a local church. To treat it like a real family and spend time there. It can be hard. I know. And I know there's temptation to give up. Because you don't see the change. But I want to encourage you to continue to repent and continue to trust the promises that God gives us that you will be transformed. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you believe that promise? Or do, are you here today I, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the edge of giving up. I just don't see it. I know it, but I just don't see it. Are you on the edge of giving up? Then live by faith. Repent of that and trust the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he will change you until the day of Christ Jesus. There will come a time There will come a time when we are actually totally transformed. It's coming. Operation Halyard had been called the greatest rescue mission of World War II. Late in the war, American bombers were sent on a dangerous mission over Yugoslavia to to take down the oil supply to Germany. Over 500 Airmen were shot down, and they parachuted down into Yugoslavia. Instead of being captured, a remarkable rescue teams were then already in place. The Serbian peasants tracked in the path of those floating crewmen, and they risked their lives to shelter them in their own houses. But there came a moment when they had to travel to the evacuation site over 500 miles, uh, over many miles, and the 500 airmen had to spend weeks following these Serbian freedom fighters who knew the path to freedom. The men had been saved from their enemy, but their journey had just begun. They still had to walk to freedom. The story of Operation Halyard sheds light on an important spiritual reality in our lives. To be rescued from something sets us on a path towards something. Brothers and sisters, eventually our transformation will be complete. Hebrews 2.12 says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. 1 John 3, 2 says, Now we are children of God, 
what we will be has not yet been made known. But we now but but we now know that when he appears we shall be like him. When he appears we shall be like him. This side of glory we're in process. When Christ comes back our transformation will be complete. I want to close with what Daniel Doriani says. He says, When we die, we do not pass into a sea of nothingness. We are not reincarnated or absorbed into the oneness of God or into the collective human spirit. We remain ourselves, the best possible version of ourselves, for all eternity. We hit our peak and we stay there with our friends and our loved ones in addition to the multitudes we meet. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have to look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for displaying your glory before us and giving us the encouragement to stay on that path. Transform us, Holy Spirit. Convict us and encourage us on this path to our total transformation one day. And Lord, we pray as as you taught us in the end of Revelation. But come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.